You're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Oahu, Oahu Home Health Care is shutting its doors at the end of the month. That has sent families of 100 patients scrambling to find alternate health care services, but options are limited for those on Medicare, and there is no short-term fix. The company issued a statement saying it's offering some of its staff of 35 employment at its other subsidiaries, and the hope is the remaining 40% of the workers can find jobs with other companies. This morning, we talked to Hilton Rachel, CEO of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii, about the dilemma. They're actually part of a larger organization. They also have Islands Hospice and Islands Skilled Nursing and Rehabilitation. So there's actually three companies that are all part of the same organization and are closing down the home health operations. But the other two operations are continuing, and that's good because... Of the 35 employees that work in home health, about 60% of those are being offered positions at their sister companies. Well, I would hope that the other employees that are going to be let go, you know, that they can get on, you know, with other home care companies as well. Currently, there have been nine home care organizations in the state of Hawaii, and this will reduce the number to eight. But what it does mean is that those eight that are remaining will need to pick up this load and because they'll need to pick up this load they're also looking for staff and that's actually one of the reasons that Oahu Home Health is shutting down is because of the challenges with staffing. So the other home health agencies are also impacted by staffing shortages and so they would be generally be very, very eager to hire any staff who may be available because Oahu Home Healthcare is shutting down. And what can you say about the patients that may be on Medicare that may not be able to, you know, find alternative care? Well, many of the patients who are on home health are on Medicare because generally, not exclusively, but generally the senior patients who do require home health services, they and many of those would then be on Medicare or have a Medicare Advantage plan. The biggest challenge we're facing is workforce. According to our workforce report, the one we've just released, home care is the industry segment that has the highest rate of vacancies. They have a vacancy rate of almost 40%, which is phenomenal. And it's primarily nurses, RNs, registered nurses, where we have the shortage for home health. The other agencies may be picking up clients, but they can only pick up clients or new patients if they have the staffing. And so that continues, and that's one of the reasons why Oahu Home Health closed down is because of the lack of staffing. It doesn't increase the net number of staff in the state, and so it doesn't help from that perspective, even though the the good news is that any staff who are impacted by this shutdown should be able to, there shouldn't be any problem at all finding a job in the labor force. So again, the biggest challenge is staffing. We're working very, very hard to increase the number of staff, but as we've talked about before, cost of living in Hawaii is a huge impediment to recruiting staff from the mainland and also to retaining staff. While there are a lot of initiatives underway to address that, there's no short-term fixes, unfortunately, to address that issue of the cost of living, the cost of housing, and the subsequent impact on healthcare workforce. And what that means then is that if you've got a patient in a hospital, for example, who may be able to go home, but they do need some home health care, if they can't get that care or if there's no nurses available or none of the agencies can provide nurses to provide that home care, patients may be kept in hospitals longer because they can't be sent home to you know, what we would call an unsafe environment. And that puts pressure on the hospitals because they're not getting, you know, the patient doesn't need to be in the hospital. They could be sent home or could be sent back to some other facility. It's obviously, it's much more expensive to take care of a patient in a hospital than in a home environment. So it does create challenges for both the patients and the healthcare system in our community. So what are these 100 families going to do if there's no short-term fix and they've got this deadline looming? We always hear that, yeah, you want to be able to keep people in their homes as long as possible, and yet the outcomes may not be good if they can't find home health care. 
one of the issues is the Medicare reimbursement. Because so many of these home health patients are on Medicare, that becomes a challenge because the home health agencies can't compete necessarily with a hospital. Hospitals are able to offer their nurses more money because they have different, you know, commercial reimbursement. A lot of the members in hospital, you know, will have commercial reimbursement, which does tend to pay higher than Medicare. And as a consequence, hospitals can offer higher salaries in a hospital setting or an inpatient setting than the home health staffing agencies can. So one of the things we're working on is working at a national level with our congressional delegation and also with the National Home Health Agency to see what we can do about increasing reimbursement for home health services. Because Medicare, they do want their members to stay in the home environment for as long as possible. And many patients or many individuals would prefer to stay in their homes for as long as possible. But if they do need some type of care, they can only stay in their home if they're able to get access to that care. So this is something that we need to address both at a local level, but especially in terms of reimbursement at a national level. The reimbursement level for Medicare is set at a national level, and our governor or Department of Health, they have no impact, or even our local plans have no impact on that, or they can't fix that particular issue. But that's a long-term fix. What do the families do then in the meantime? Well, in the meantime, it does create a real issue because patients either end up staying in a hospital for longer than what they need to be, or the family ends up trying to provide care, or they're having to maybe take their family member, actually have to drive them to a physician office, for example, for them to receive you know, some type of treatment. But we do have a shortage of home health services in this community, and it's not just in Hawaii. The issues we're talking about, the reimbursement issues we're talking about, the payment issues we're talking about, the staffing issues we're talking about, that's a national impact. It's not just a Hawaii issue. I guess then you're working with the, with the company to help transition so that we don't have patients that are left hanging? That is correct. We're working to transition as many of these patients as possible across to the eight other agencies that do remain. So when they do shut down, we'll only have a total of eight agencies in the state. But again, their ability to take on these patients is constrained by whether or not they have the staff. And working in home health is a challenging environment. You know, you have some people really like it. Some nurses really like it. They get to travel to people's homes. They're not just working on a ward. So it is attractive for some nurses, but it's also a challenging environment, you know, to go from house to house to house each day. And you may have, you know, four, five, six visits a day. And then, you, you know, you may have to do, to do a lot of driving, which works for some people. It's not as it doesn't work for other folks. So is there, a, I don't know, a go-to place for families? Is there a place, you know, someone to call specifically if, if they call all the other companies on that list and there's no room at the inn or they can't afford to pay, you know, I guess they just have to make do? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, there's no centralized, you know, calling the Department of Health um, is not a solution here. Calling CMS is not a solution here. You know, we do have a free market environment. You know, it's a private market for these, you know, there's no public home health service per se. These are all private agencies. And it's, it's a reality of the another consequence of the very high cost of living in, in Hawaii and also the labor shortage that we have in Hawaii. So that's, it's impacting many other sectors, but it becomes much more immediate and much more personal when you're talking about healthcare and the impact on people's lives in terms of their ability to take care of themselves or the ability of families to take care of their loved ones. Right, and keep them out of the hospital. And keep them out of the hospital, yeah. So if someone could be taken care of in a home health environment, but there's no nurse to visit them once or twice a day or three times a week or whatever, however long it is, however many visits they need, these patients may end up in a hospital. They don't need to be in a hospital, but if we don't have care in the home environment, they could end up in a much more expensive environment, which is a hospital setting, and it's an environment they don't need to be in. They don't need that level of care. It's just that they can't get the care they need in a home setting. Yeah, not, not a good uh, place to be going into this new year. 
It is not, and unfortunately, it's a you know it's a very very challenging situation for these for these patients, and we do feel we do feel for them, and we feel for their families because because it puts pressure on the families as well, or any family members who may be trying to take care of them. That was Hilton Rathel, head of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii, talking about the pending shutdown of Oahu Home Healthcare. Read your labels carefully. Where did your coffee and nuts really come from? That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats business reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, I mean, you've been doing some stories about uh, the dilemma with Mac Nuts, uh, and, uh, and now it's coffee. Exactly. It, it, there is a growing movement uh, to uh, try to have more clear labeling of Hawaii products. You know, as you know, there is a, a big movement to buy local. People want to support local agriculture by buying local products. And that's one side of this. The other side, when it comes to coffee, is a lot of people say, look, if we don't allow blends of Kona coffee, Kona coffee will just be too expensive and people won't buy it. And in the end, It'll hurt the farmers and restaurant owners who serve it and retailers and roasters and everyone else. So that's one side of the argument. The other side is, hey, we really want to make this clear to people what they're buying. And even if it says somewhere on the label, this is only 10% Kona coffee, people might be misled into thinking what they're buying is, is the real deal. And uh, Kona farmers, coffee farmers say, look, if it's only 10%, it's so diluted that it really doesn't, the flavor doesn't really come out. Well, you know, I, I just recall a recent experience where I wanted to buy local. I was at the airport on the Big Island, and I saw some Lily Koi cakes uh, from Lapahoihoi. And I thought, oh, I'll support that little bakery. And then I ate it, and then I looked at the back of the packaging, and it said made in Taiwan. So you really kind well, of wonder, you know, who am I supporting here? Yeah, that's exactly it. And that, that experience really underscores what people are saying, that they're, they're, consumers aren't really sure what's going on. Of course, the Kona coffee bill has come up again and again. This isn't the first time. It's really a decades-old issue. Uh, the question is will it gain traction in the legislature this time around now that there really does seem to be a growing movement? As you said, MacNuts uh, people, the MacNut farmers have launched an ad advertising campaign to tell people, read the label, make sure they're 100% Hawaiian MacNuts. Uh, there's a lawsuit involving milk and meadow gold uh, dairy and whether it's using uh, Hawaiian milk, even though it says made with aloha and Hawaii's dairy, and, and they're not. They're importing a, much of the milk uh, because we only have one dairy milk farm here, and Meadow Gold has to import it and process it here, or in some cases completely import the, the milk that's already been packaged and processed. So it, it really is an issue, and the question is, again, will the legislature uh, pass something this year? Last year, there was a bill. It would have required 51% uh, Kona coffee to be labeled. If it was labeled Kona coffee, that died in the Senate. We'll see what happens this year. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a dilemma. You know, we've just come out of this. Uh, we're still coming out of this pandemic and lots of emphasis on food security and buying local. And, and if we are going to really push that, um, you want to know what exactly are you buying? Right, and, and that really is what it comes down to. Again, a lot of states are very aggressive about protecting their crops. Uh, things like Idaho potatoes, uh, supporters of this bill point to Idaho potatoes, Vermont and maple syrup, again, uh, Napa and wines in California. All of these have much stricter regulations than we have here in Hawaii and protections for uh, big cash crops. And again, if you talk about mac nuts and uh, coffee, they're number one and number two in terms of value to the state. Any champions at the legislature that'll really push this issue, you think? 
Yes. Well, Nicole Lowen, uh, the representative, says that she will push it. She's waiting to see who all wants to join her and figure out exactly what they're going to do. But she said definitely she'll introduce something again or co-sponsor something. Okay. All right. Something to watch. But thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was business reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Read his stories on the issue. Visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual courses such as art, film, history, and gardening. Classes begin Tuesday, January 17th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. On the next Fresh Air, we continue our series of some of our favorite interviews of the year with comic, actor, and writer Gerard Carmichael. This year, he won an Emmy for his HBO comedy special, Rothaniel. It's all about secrets. Secrets about his name, his family, and his sexual orientation. It's like a hybrid of a comedy show and a therapy session. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Around the holidays, people are traveling to be with family. But if home is where your heart is, as we often hear in Hawaii, where you stay. Here to turn that stone over is our contributing editor, Neil Milner, for today's Longview. Good morning. Hi, I'm turning stones over. <laughs> <laughs> this is an, an essay that caught my mind. It's in a magazine you probably never heard of, but it's pretty good, called Texas Highways. The article is by Elizabeth Bruning, and it's about leaving uh, a place where your family has many years, traditions, 200 years in this case, and moving away what looks like for good. It isn't so simple as to say home is where your heart is. And one of the reasons that this attracted me is that in some ways, just as I describe the situation right now, it sounds like Hawaii. But the way she tells the story is very different from the way we usually talk about people who have left uh, and, and continue to think about the place. The way we normally think about it here tends to be kind of sappy and nostalgic, um, and that your, your heart is still in Hawaii. Uh, the, the song Waikiki is a good example. And um, what she does is much more complicated in explaining her relationships, and um, I think it evokes similarities to what a lot of people go through but don't talk about it. So I was just fat. She's a, she's a very good writer. She's a professional writer and is one of Pulitzer Prize. So that, that helps. But here's a couple of things that, that you see in the story. You really have to read it because the language is so good. And I really can't evoke that kind of, if I could have that kind of language, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. <laughs> okay. It would be at my writing desk. Uh, uh, but the he, the first thing to know is that after 200 years, her her parents always said, "When uh, when you have grandkids, we're going to move where you are," which is a story you hear sometime. But it turns out to be much more complicated. The first thing she says is that I didn't really realize that I had left Texas. I never thought about it uh, for 12 years until my parents were in the process of moving over. And so essentially, that's a more complicating factor than to say, I missed it right away. Uh, the, the second thing is that she talks about leaving as if it were one thing led to another. She went away to, a, to an Ivy League school. She had a high school sweetheart. Um, he goes to the University of Oklahoma. She goes to uh, New England. They stay together. They ultimately marry. Life goes on, and it's not like she had issues with Hawaii. It's not like she ever thought much about moving back. She just kept moving forward. Now, she had a, quote, career, but that makes it more simple. So the life there was you're not thinking all the time about moving back or, or not moving back. That's, that's a, another important factor. The other thing is how strong 
her feelings, her ability to evoke what Texas is like. All of these things about place names here. And that's where I want to get back to Hawaii for a second. You know, we have a lot of music about home and returning home. And, and Honolulu City Lights, which still brings tears to my eyes, talks about how hard it is to leave home. Except that song is about a guy who leaves home and stays away, right? He's going away. He comes back. He's sad. He lights a cigarette. He's at the airport. He's going somewhere back again, presumably because there's something that it wants him. We don't think about that part of the song very much. So there is this very different kind of uh, complicated relationship there, how strong she still feels about Texas, how she evokes the sights and smells, um, the special thing about, uh, about living there. But there's no indication at all that she's thinking of going back. She doesn't say, I'm not going back because. She doesn't say, I really want to go back and pay the sacrifices. She says something like, I sure, someday I want to take my kids back and show them the family history, but it's not the same. So it's a, to me, it, it adds a kind of a voice to understanding this moving to and from Hawaii that I think we don't spend enough attention to. And so we kind of mythologize certain kinds of moves and certain kinds of longing when this is a much more complicated way to think about it. Yeah, there's the romance and the reality of there, it, right? That's mm -hmm. right. And she has, she has the romance. She understands the reality, but she doesn't really bother. That's not a distinction that, that, she's, that she's making because you don't live your life that way. So it's kind of a sense. I've often wondered why we don't have much more about how the, what I call the Hawaii diaspora lives. You know, we know certain places. We know that there's a lot of folks in Vegas and so on. But, we, you know, to, to sit down and talk to a group like that, and, of course, there is a, a Kuma Kahua play, Aloha Las Vegas, that kind of stuff. But... I don't think we were so concerned about bringing people back and about losing people and about longing that um, we miss this more complicated relationship. You know, there, I mean, there are lots of uh, reasons why uh, people leave Hawaii uh, and why they stay. Sure, that's exactly right. And when they leave, just as when they stay, they still have, well, if they're not from here, they still have a kind of complicated connection to where they are. That doesn't mean they'd rather be there. It doesn't, but it also doesn't mean that they're so attached to this place. And the other, and the other way around too. Just because you leave, doesn't mean you're, you know, you're cutting it off. I mean, the, the iconic story is uh, is um, the Waikiki, the, the song Waikiki, because he wrote it. <laughs> He's a musician, right? Cummings. He mm -hmm. wrote it. Andy Cummings. On, on Andy Cummings on a on a snowy day, uh, walking home from a gig in um, somewhere in Michigan, and and he's writing about the longing for it. But of course, he had to continue the tour, and then he ultimately he does move back for good. But that that's essentially why uh, why I was attracted to this. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think when you say that she wants to take her kids back to show them sure. you know, that part of the history. I mean, there's that connect. There is that connect. But when that comes at the end, and by the time you're at the end of this thing, you know that she's not talking in a kind of nostalgic way, uh, even though she has a powerful sense of history. I mean, her family is an interesting Texas piece of work. I mean, you can make a... You could make a, a, a uh, HBO series out, out of it, you know, <laughs> the way her mother talks and, and uh, her old grandfather and her dad who's just a basic businessman, but turns out he'd been a pretty good horse rider uh, back in the day. Well, you know, a, a lot of people, you know, wonder if they can continue to afford to stay in Hawaii. And, and you know, we, we turned the stone in our uh, turned the stone over in our minds, you know, uh, how long can I afford to live here? Oh, no, I think that's right. And that's a kind of policy-driven way of thinking about it. And I think that's important, and I think that's how politicians tend to think about it. You want to create jobs here, um, and, and you, know, you want to make it economically feasible. And that's crucial. That's very important, especially since surveys show that a large percentage of people think about moving here for, for that reason. But this is something in addition to this, whether you stay or whether you leave, um, this is more about what else is going through you when you make the decision. It's never, almost never a snip cut off. 
Yeah, I mean, I just remember when I was in a, a position where I was faced with the prospect of having to move away, I was saying goodbye to all the places that I'd loved here. Yes, sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, That's to process right. it, right? But, but if you had done the move, and I know in your case you didn't, those places would not go away. Um, in your mind, but they would not necessarily be strong enough to pull you back, and it's not like your life would be spent thinking about them all the time. Yeah, the tensions of life. Ah, yes. (laughs) All right, well, thank you so much, Neil. You're welcome. Uh, Political analyst Neil Milner is our contributing editor of our biweekly segment, The Long View, and he'll be back in two weeks to continue the conversation. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. With a selection of gifts, publications, jewelry, and handcrafted goods at the HOMA shop, all proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions, open during museum hours. Next time on The World, the story of Russian cosmonauts stuck in space during the collapse of the Soviet Union, and the amateur radio operator in Australia who kept a nightly contact with them. They traded stories, news, even cooking tips. I really liked the space chicken recipe. Very nice. Over. A truly long-distance friendship on the world. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options, scheidler.hawaii.edu. Hisa is thanking her lucky stars landing in Honolulu before fierce winter storms on the mainland hit. The Culver City resident was back in town celebrating Island Pacific Academy's Home for the Holidays alumni event earlier this month. The 2015 graduate and board of trustee member just completed her master's degree and is applying to medical school. She spoke with HPR's Lillian Song about her desire to return to Oahu to improve access to health care and to address health disparities. Right now, I'm studying for the MCAT. It is a long, rigorous process. It's been a few years since I graduated from undergrad. I decided to pursue a master's to boost my academic side of the application and also do a little more research because that is where my passions lie, especially in heart health education improving health equity and reducing health disparities and working with underserved communities. You attended UCLA, then you went on to the Charles R. Drew University. You graduated with a Master of Science degree. What was your specialty? I got my master's in biomedical science. I took classes through that program like biochemistry, bioinformatics, different physiology courses as well. But also we had to complete a thesis. And my thesis project actually stemmed back from my heart disease research project I co-founded at UCLA during my undergrad with three cardiologists, Dr. Kara Watson, Dr. Tamara Horwich, and Dr. Marcella Press. And we created and sent educational and motivational health-based text messages reminding patients to exercise more, put down the salt shaker, and to quit smoking. And those were some of the text messages that got a lot of positive feedback. And that is what I want to do in creating now this health education app expanding it to underserved communities and adults. I felt that to make it an inclusive app, I needed to expand the 
patient population. I actually co-founded the project in 2017, and this was after graduating from Island Pacific Academy, where I was actually planning to enter the military. I was applying to the Naval Academy, but through that military application process, I was medically disqualified for high blood pressure. And I realized that in that moment, I didn't understand the complicated and systemic barriers to healthcare that keep us from preventing diseases in our communities. And that is kind of what inspired and motivated me to improve and address access to healthcare and improving health education. I guess my mind is still on the fact that just out of high school, you're applying for military service. That's a great avenue to pursue to help fund education. But then to be told, hey, your blood pressure is too high. I think a lot had to do with genetics as well, but it was just really surprising to me and shocking because like, I, I felt healthy. I had annual checkups and it was just very surprising to hear that at that time like I mentioned I didn't understand all the barriers to healthcare and maybe there's different things that prevent us from receiving that diagnosis early on and I just wanted to get to the bottom of it and have it more accessible because I feel like a lot of people don't fully understand how to prevent diseases till they get a heart attack or something bad happens. So this really pinpointed my focus to wanting to pursue medicine, be a resource for my community through my research work and take advantage of all the opportunities around me and to share my experience with others to be able to address the things I'm most passionate about and want to make a societal impact through my personal experiences. What are the most pressing issues that concern you as a young professional? Yeah, the most pressing issues is obviously the barriers to healthcare access. And as a health professional, I want to make sure not only that healthcare is more accessible, but also young people are educated on health issues for long-term health impacts because we know that disease is preventable and also takes time to develop. So being able to catch these diseases at a young time and be educated is so important and also misinformation with the recent COVID-19 pandemic and the vaccine hesitancy, making sure that education is delivered in a trusted and understandable where it's also culturally relevant way is so important and making sure that physicians are aware of these social issues and are able to deliver it empathetically so it can reach these populations and communities in need. And as you're building the app, but also pursuing your medical degree, Mm -hmm. what goals locally do you have to address health disparities for the community here? Yeah, my goals are to come back and to hopefully practice as a physician in Hawaii. My supportive mentorship and the generosity given to me here made me realize my humble beginnings at Island Pacific Academy and want to pay it forward and also share my knowledge that I've learned in Los Angeles to be able to bring it back and help serve the Hawaii community because I am aware of the physician shortage here and I want to make an impact and be a resource to this community, especially with chronic disease illnesses such as heart disease and diabetes, which is very prevalent in this community. And I believe that my experiences has equipped me with the clinical as well as the skills to reduce the disparity gap. Mm -hmm. Any words of advice for anyone considering the medical field, especially here in Hawaii? The best practices have been 
just reaching out, pursuing your passions and interests and finding that mentorship and support, I think is so important to have that in your journey and the guidance to prepare you to get to the next steps because it is a long journey and you want to make sure you really want to pursue medicine because a lot of times it is difficult to there is a lot of academic challenges you may face and things like that but I think perseverance and having that support is critical to success as a future physician also the experiences even being out of school for some time I think I feel better prepared to for entering medical school because of the experiences I was able to have between my undergrad and now applying to medical school so don't get discouraged and always keep an open mind I think is the best advice I can give Yes. Okay. Well, Kimberly, you tapped in on mentorships. Who were your local mentors? Definitely the school administration at Island Pacific Academy, head of school, Mr. Teremai, has been a huge support from my high school experience to college, my time at UCLA, and still believing in me and my journey to medical school and now having me as a member of the board of trustees. I'm happy to share my expertise and perspectives to advocate for current students and alums at IPA. Also developing changes to academic curriculum by increasing the focus on equity and society, societal impact. So. Um, my ex- sharing my experiences and ideas with the school, I think, is important. And also, I had other mentors on the island, such as BJ, also a school administrator, and in the alumni aspect, then Miss Shannon, also super supportive. I'm so excited to be home and just to reconnect with some alums that I haven't been able to connect through through busy times and just to celebrate being home and all of our achievements in the past years. So being home for the holidays is a good time to just celebrate all that has happened this past year. That was HPR's Lillian Song talking with Island Pacific Academy alum Kimberly Uehisa. Uh, Uheza recently won $10,000 to develop a digital avatar-based education tool building on her uh, research work with heart disease. The seed funding will go toward developing an app that Uheza hopes to use with her future patients. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute with the song of the White Rumped Shama. Thanks to the Malkale Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology for the recordings. Here's a, a University of Hawaii at Hilo professor, Patrick Hart. If you live on Kauai or Oahu, there's a good chance you've seen or heard the White Rumped Shama. They measure about 10 inches from the tip of their bill to the end of their very long tail and really stand out both in their plumage and in their song. The males have a beautiful glossy black back, chestnut orange chest, white rump, and a particularly long black and white tail that flicks up and down when agitated. Females look similar, but their colors are less vibrant. A series of melodious trills and flute-like whistles that make up the male's song when he's trying to attract a female can often be heard year-round. The beauty of these songs is one of the reasons white rump shama are declining in much of their native habitat across Southeast Asia. With birdsong competitions becoming increasingly popular in many areas across that region, they're one of the most sought-after birds. 
with the best singers bringing big prize money. White Rump Shama were introduced to Kauai in 1931, Oahu in 1940, and they've recently been reported and seem to be increasing on both Molokai and Maui. While many people still call them Shama Thrush, they're actually members of the Old World Flycatcher family. They live on year-round territories in mostly non-native forest and lower elevation habitats, where they consume a mix of introduced fruits and insects. They do sometimes make it into our native forests, where they likely spread a variety of weeds and compete for resources with some of our much rarer native birds. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Waiakea Hawaiian Volcanic Water, offering alkaline water sourced from the Keaau Aquifer on the Big Island. Learn more about subscriptions at waiakea.com. Today on The Daily, NASA released new groundbreaking pictures taken from a point in space one million miles from the Earth. Ken Chang on the telescope that took those images and what it can teach us about the universe. I'm Estet Herndon. That's Today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Big Island musician and singer Keana Lee O. Manae Bertelman is known to many as Anna B. She released her first album this month. It's titled Ku'u Kula Ibe and celebrates places around her island home that have inspired her. Bertelman grew up in Waimea in a musical family, but you may recognize her last name for a different reason. Her father, Clay, was one of the original Hokulea members, and her sister, Pomai, was one of the first female captains of the Voyaging Canoe. The album is unique not only because of the sound quality and production, but because she made a debut record at an age when most musicians are issuing best-of compilations or winding down their careers. The release also comes shortly after her decision to embrace her identity as a transgender woman. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Anna B. to talk about her music and the crossroads of identity. The songs on your album are pretty diverse in sound. You've got some up-tempo songs, you've got some slower-tempo ones, you've got some very traditional-sounding songs, and then you've got some songs that sound a little bit more modern. Hilani Vai has some wailing electric guitar in there that I really like. How many of the songs on your album did you write? How many of them are kind of traditional songs? So I wrote all of the songs except for one. The song Lava Kamanu that's on the album was written by my friend Kamala Yim. And I had the opportunity. He wrote the, the lyrics and I put the, the music to it. But all of the rest of the songs I wrote myself. In terms of, of your music ability and your songwriting ability, did you have any formal training or... Do you kind of just write from the heart? Do you kind of just uh, play by ear? Were you trained or, or is it just kind of a natural talent? Humbly, um, I never had any formal training. For me, the music and the songs just sort of come. Sometimes in the middle of the night, I'll hear a melody or something. And, and you know, luckily we have technology these days. So I jump up and will sing the melody or grab my ukulele and play the melody into my voice recorder so that I don't forget it. And words and music actually comes that way for me also a lot of times. So on on the album, um, most of those songs were chosen because when I we decided to actually do an album, I wanted to honor place. I wanted to honor places that have inspired me. I've had the opportunity to teach for a really Kind of a long time now and in teaching resource teaching especially i've been able to to be in a lot of places throughout Hawaii. and some of those places not a lot of people get to go to and so i really wanted to honor 
those places and how it inspired or influenced my life. One of my favorite songs is Hie Hie Waimea. It sounds like a love letter to our hometown. Is that what you attended or, or am I off point? No, you're absolutely right on point. We both know, yeah, how special this place is, how how special Waimea is to us that, that we're born and raised here. It's changed a lot from when even when we were little, but it, I am so grateful and it's something that I, I speak every single day, the gratitude that I feel to have been raised and still live in such a beautiful, beautiful place. My mom's family has been in Waimea for nine generations. My nieces and nephews are the ninth generation. Recorded, I mean, because our actually family history goes back much, much longer than that here in Waimea. But that we still get to stay here and be here, even amongst all of the change, has been something that, that I'm super, super grateful for. And you're right, it was an opportunity to honor home. And and if you know this, if you listen to here, here Waimea, there are some instruments in there, like the banjo and the slide guitar. I wanted that song to sound a little bit like a country song to honor our Paniolo heritage in Waimea also. You know, I, I won't say how old we are, but, <laughs> but you know, you're a little older than when musicians usually release debut albums. And you've also transitioned to a transgender woman. As your identity has evolved over time, has one facet of your identity helped you become more confident and comfortable with the other? Has being a transgender woman given you, given you more confidence to put yourself out there as a musical artist and kind of vice versa? The thing is, if there was no intention of actually, in the very beginning of releasing a full album, I wanted to just lay down rough tracks of my songs so that if in case anything happened to me, it wouldn't just be words on paper. If somebody open composition books that I've written those songs in, that they would know what those songs sound like. And it's really interesting that you ask that because I've been wanting to record for a long time. And I, I really try my best to live my life by by divine timing. And when the universe and the Aumakua and the Akua kind of, you know, when, when things are in alignment is when I'll kind of go for and take the opportunity if it presents itself. And that's kind of exactly what happened with this project. I transitioned later. A lot of times, you know, people transition when they're they're much younger. And I I waited. I waited a long time, actually. And I'm actually really, for myself personally, glad that I waited. And after, But after I started transitioning is when the opportunity to record the album came. And I, I really feel like I have to be my truest self before I could actually go in the studio and start the project. And it's really interesting to me how that all worked out. It took us about a year to record the album, and I only started my transition probably three years prior to that, maybe four at the most. Actually, it was a little bit longer than that, but noticeably transitioning was probably about three years ago. And So, yes, I think the transition actually opened the door for all of these other opportunities that happened, not just the album, but other opportunities that have come since that time. It must be a, such a fulfilling feeling to be able to express yourself as a musician, as a transgender woman, to be who you really are in the world. Yep, you're absolutely right. You know, I there's much to be said for making the choices necessary in life to be and live your full your full self, whatever that is for you, for anybody. You know, when we, when we were younger, there wasn't the terms that there are now for the spectrum, you know, anybody that falls on the, the, the spectrum. And for anyone listening, I really hope that I, I, I'm not so, I'm not the greatest with all of the, the terms, but I just know what it is for myself. And, you know, whatever, whatever it is that helps a person to live their best, and, and most full life, you know, is, is so important. And it has been for me. It has been I probably the most happy I've been in my entire life. 
Your father was Clay Bertelman, one of the original Hokulea crew. Your sister is Pomai Bertelman, one of the first female captains of the Hokulea. You come from a very talented and a very deeply rooted Hawaiian family. Do you feel your album brings you closer to your culture? And how do you think it strengthens your family's legacy? Wow. Uh, yeah, um, it's a little emotional. That, yeah. was, that, that makes me a little emotional. So yes, yes, yes. So my hope really, so when we mentioned, when you mentioned my dad, yeah, my dad sailing on Hokulea and all of the other things that he was able to accomplish before he passed away. And then my sister sailing, all of those things. And, and even the album, Ivi, I hope that when young people, especially our young Hawaiian people, and not even just the young ones, but anybody who is Hawaiian, first of all, and anybody who's not Hawaiian, will look at the the things that we were able to accomplish individually and as a family, whether it's voyaging on the canoes or building canoes or music and releasing albums, that it inspires people. That's really how I hope whatever contributions my family has made to our lahui, my hope is that it inspires their people. If there's a legacy there, it's a familial legacy, I hope that that legacy inspires our kanaka. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate talking to you. No problem. I appreciate you reaching out very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Mahalo. That was Big Island musician Anna B talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. Anabi's debut album, Ku'u Kula'ive, is available on all major streaming services. to go now but up tomorrow we plan to hear more about oahu's landfill dilemma what do you think the city should do about relocating the west side facilities leave your feedback on our talkback line 808-792-8217 or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org want to listen back to something you heard find our archive shows online by searching for the conversation podcast on spotify and apple i'm katherine cruz join us tomorrow for more of the conversation